0: Welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. So if you've been following progressive politics for the last few years, you may have noticed a new wave of young progressives bringing in a lot of interesting new ideas. And we have a congressional candidate in Ohio who is discussing basic income.
1: So Morgan Harper is running for Congress in the 3rd District in Ohio. She's challenging a current Democratic incumbent and running on a much more progressive platform. Morgan's background is in policy and regulatory work. She was previously at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So I had a chance to sit down and talk to Morgan about her policy platform, which does include universal income. I should note, for the sake of full disclosure, that I am a supporter of her campaign. I have donated to her. But this interview was really just to dig into her positions and understand where she's coming from. So here's Jim's conversation with Morgan Harper. All right, Morgan, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So you're running for Congress in Ohio's third congressional district as the primary challenger. And you're up against an incumbent Democrat who has pretty strong support from the local Democratic establishment, which is quite a bold undertaking on your part. Can you talk about what made you decide to run?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it starts pretty early on, you know, growing up here. Well, actually being born here, I was given up for adoption. I lived in a foster home and was raised on the east side. And I got financial aid to go to a you know elite college preparatory school that showed me the income inequality and economic segregation that's at play in central Ohio and that you know, I came to understand really across our country. And I've been motivated to do something about that. I've worked in Washington, worked in policy, and really got to the point where I didn't feel like what we were doing was really addressing that key issue. And what would is federal legislation that will make sure people are able to meet their basic needs. And there's a movement happening to do that. And I felt like the people living in the third district should be a part of that.
1: So on that note, your background is very much in the the policy, the regulatory space. and, And as you say that tends to approach problem solving in a much more incremental way. And in contrast, your policy platform is quite bold. You have programs like the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, systemic reparations, and universal income. Can you talk about how either what that transition was or, or how your previous work got you, informed your thinking to get you to where you are now?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I have been kind of brought up in this this tradition of thinking incrementally from a policy perspective, for sure, because that's dominated, I would say, policy think tanks in Washington for a generation. And, you know, what we know to be true is bold thinking is what has changed the course of this country, sometimes in ways that aren't great, but certainly in the ways that have contributed to people, improving people's standard of living. It's bold ideas that get us there. And, That that's where I'm coming from with this. And actually, you know, I worked at an organization, I would say CFPB was also an example of bold thinking, you know, creating a federal agency, a lot of people said, you know, you can't just come up with a new agency. It's like, well, no, we can. And actually, when you give uh, an agency the mandate and the resources to actually accomplish something for working people, real people living in this country, it can do that. And we did that at CFPB every single day. $12 12 billion dollars back to 28 million consumers and really changing um the way that the financial market consumer financial markets worked to make sure that they were protecting the interests of working people. So um that was, you know, kind of my example of what's possible at the federal level in a lot of ways because I had worked in Washington, you know, and during the Bush administration when I was just out of college and and kind of got exposed to this more incremental way of thinking and and we see the results of that. I mean, here in in the Third District, we see that we have neighborhoods that have unchanged poverty rates over the course of my lifetime and those that are changing. You know, it's changing because new people are moving in through gentrification, not because anybody that's been living there is doing well. We are seeing in the third district and I'm canvassing these neighborhoods all the time that used to be fairly stable middle-class neighborhoods that have deteriorated that, you know, people are living in these places. They've lived their whole lives that their parents were able to have a job that met their, you know, basic needs and covered their expenses. And they aren't finding that to be as easy. So, um, I just think we're at a pretty critical point right now for our country where it is very clear. We have all the evidence we need to know that the economy is not working for everyone and we need to be moving quickly and thinking boldly about what would do that. So that's what informs my policy platform.
1: So diving in specifically on universal income, since this is the Basic Income podcast,
2: what was (laughs)
1: your motivation for including that on your platform and what impact do you see that potentially having on the people in your district?
2: Yeah. So my motivation there also connects to my time working at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. You know, a lot of what informed our work there was research that was done in other parts of the government. You know, the Federal Reserve, for example, does studies on the financial well-being of families. CFPB also did that. And we see that the reality is for, you know, a not insignificant percentage of people in this country, $400 shortfalls, and those are people that are certainly living in the third district. $400 monthly shortfalls can lead them into financial ruin. That you know, start can start a spiral of events like getting evicted from an apartment, having to take out a predatory loan, or having a medical expense that your insurance won't cover, and you, it's very difficult to bounce back from that. You know, especially in like the payday instance, you are encountering 400% interest rates and debt traps that it's not easy. It can take years to unwind out of that. And so I think that's pretty crazy in, you know, one of the most affluent countries in the entire world that we would be having families, individuals, children that whose lives are being um, derailed for $400 shortfalls. And we need to do something about that. And the way to do something about that is giving people money, right? And it's not that complicated. And, uh, and we have to do that because, in some ways, you know, the system we have now where there's lots of different types of benefit programs, you if you start doing better, then you don't qualify for, you know, other types of assistance. But having a program that just would involve giving everybody $1,000 a month that won't then impact your ability to qualify for other benefits is, is you know, one way that I think we can immediately start improving families and people's bottom lines. And the other thing I would say there is you know, I don't think this is a substitute for thinking and, you know, creating more systemic solutions that like those that are part of my platform, like a jobs guarantee, uh, like Medicare for all, like all these other things. But, you know, we really want to combine systemic solutions that will take a little bit of time to implement with immediate, immediate uh, ideas that are going to support working families.
1: So turning more to your campaign, ostensibly our electoral system is set up to allow and even encourage primary challengers to incumbents. But it does often seem like there are some pretty steep barriers to actually doing that. Can you talk a bit about what your experience has been in that regard?
2: Yes, I like the way you phrased the question, because in some ways it gets at what I think is pretty funny with these, you know, primary challenger insurgent quote unquote campaigns is why are these controversial, right? I mean, it's a democracy and uh, having more than one choice is kind of an expression of that democracy. And so, you know, I think um, it's unfortunate that this is the system we've come to accept the party culture that you know is about keeping certain people in and certain people out, and you kiss the rings and play by the rules until you get to move ahead and that's the only way that you get to be part of the club when really we see, like I was referencing earlier, that system if if politics is about helping people, well, that system has failed because. A lot of people in this district are not doing well. And so, yeah, you know, running as a primary challenger against a well-known incumbent is certainly difficult um, in one concrete way. It made it difficult to attract uh, talent at the beginning of this race because a lot of people are are fearful of the retribution of the party of you know different power players here in central Ohio if they were or throughout the state, really, if they were to work on this type of campaign. But you know that's the exact reason why. I think we need to have more people that are putting themselves out there running these types of races to normalize it in a way because we we are not presenting ideas that uh, people don't disagree with. I mean, I you know, a lot of the platform I travel through the third district and people are grateful that one. I haven't held political office before, so I'm not part of that machine. And two, you know, another tenant of our race is that I'm not accepting any corporate PAC money. And this is a clear contrast to my opponent um, who takes 80% corporate PAC money. So that people don't understand the impact of those contrasts all the time unless they're presented with an alternative. And those alternatives come through having more open primaries.
1: So amongst the people in your district who are supporting your campaign... And particularly those who are actively contributing or volunteering, do you have a sense of what about your candidacy is most resonating with them? I mean, maybe it's just we talked about or is there something beyond that?
2: Well, yeah, like I said, I mean, I think a lot of people are excited that we are we're bold, right? We're bold, I'm open, I'm willing to talk about real issues, you know, like I've been supporting uh well, actually just today we released an addition to our platform, you know that we're calling public safety that gets at reforms that need to take place to how we think about policing and, you know, federal interventions that would help to prevent violent policing, right? That's a topic, there's been a ton of organizing around. So, you know, not to say that uh, I'm, or I, or the campaign is like treading new ground in some ways in, in putting these policies forward. A lot of people here in Columbus, here in central Ohio, in the third district, across the country have done a lot of groundwork to present the data and the, and the studies that, you know, inform the platform, but there hasn't been a lot of political figures that are willing to talk about it and there are a number of issues like that i would say of of people activists you know here in the third that feel that way like great now we have now we have someone who's really real and going to talk about what we're experiencing and a lot of the pain points and and people are feeling it and one of those key pain points that you know connects to the universal income thing again is people are not making enough money to live. I meet people every single day in this district that are working two jobs, three jobs. If they just have one, it's one, you know, that's not covering all of, you know, housing, food, et cetera, or they're doubling up with a family member in order to try to make ends meet. And this isn't sustainable. So, you know, the fact that our platform is speaking to the reality that a lot of people in this district are living that in one that they haven't always felt political leaders are speaking with any urgency about our real solutions that's appealing, and it only uh it only the only challenge I'm finding in you know being a primary challenger and all of that is making sure that people know the race is happening because of exactly what you're talking about with the advantages of incumbency. We have to work extra hard to make sure that people are hearing about our race, know that they have a choice, and we're going directly to them through grassroots canvassing and, and other community events and things so uh yeah, it's almost. And that's what's most exciting to me in a way is, you know, we're talking about the right things because once we connect with people, they're very, very grateful to have someone who's willing to, to speak to these issues.
1: On that note, what does the path going forward for you look like?
2: Yeah, so we just wrapped up our first quarter. We had a really strong quarter. You know, we raised over $300,000, no pack money. All in over 2,600 individual contributors from all 50 states and and 90% of the zip codes that make up the third district. I obviously want to hit 100% of the zip codes that make up the third district, and just from like a fundraising or reach point of view. But you know, really now we're able to continue to execute our strategy. So we're trying to canvas as often as we can, you know, get out there, knock doors, and and really try to just share a message, host a lot of meet and greets. We were on the the West side this past weekend, hosting a meet and greet at a, a library there um, in Prairie Township. And, you know, just continue to spread the word and connect with folks and you know make sure our volunteers are getting onboarded well as we march towards March 17th, 2020, the day of our primary.
0: That was Jim Pugh and Morgan Harper on the Basic Income Podcast. Uh, yeah, like I said at the top, I am just struck by this new wave of progressives that often are primary challenging more, uh, more established Democrats, and it always just makes me think about how, when you, when a politician doesn't want to bring up a certain issue, either they don't believe in it or they just don't think it is, you know, politically advantageous, or they don't think it's going to go anywhere. There are a few remedies for that, but they mostly involve replacing that politician, and that tend, if it's you know something that would likely come from that politician's party, in this case, the Democrats that is going to mean a primary challenge. And those can either just replace the person or show them that they're going to have to get hip to this issue if, if they want to keep playing in this field. And otherwise, they're going to eventually get overrun by a new wave that thinks about things a little differently.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think as we discussed, there's quite a bit of tension right now within the party about this whole idea um, of, of how, how democratic our systems ought to be And do we want to embrace the idea that, yes, we should have a real primary system and allow the general populace to be able to weigh in on on who is representing a given party? Or do we lean more into a system where where we do trust the expertise of people who have been doing this a long time? I think right now there is probably the lowest level of trust in that expertise that there's been for a very, very long time. because. I, th- I mean, I think it's just generally become more visible that so much of the way we have been approaching things is, to say the least, suboptimal if not fully broken, and so. Uh, but that's that's certainly bringing up a lot of tension here.
0: Yeah, I was struck with her comment about how she's seen these neighborhoods and these districts that have the the same level of poverty that they've had since she was growing up, and. You know, and that's not uh, unique to the Columbus area. This this is something across the nation. You see all these areas that are not getting better. If anything, they're slowly sinking just in terms of their economic prosperity. And just to jump back to to the sort of politics of this, it really makes me think about how political parties, and we can just focus on the Democrats here, they have two main goals. One is to advance certain policies and make them the law of the land and the other is to elect democrats and sometimes the existing power structure will will feel some tension in there that they don't want to advance certain policies because it will it will hurt electing democrats and that's why they don't want primary challengers they're like all right this guy's already won before let's just let's just keep him in you know set it and forget it and once we have enough of people like that then okay we can talk about your wacko ideas and and some of us aren't aren't patient enough to to wait to talk about our wacko ideas we want to talk about basic income and doing real stuff on climate change and, and a whole lot of other things that, you know, it's if that had been moving along at a steady clip for the past few decades for, say, the entirety of Morgan Harper's life, then that would be one thing. And we could say, okay, the system's working well enough that we can just kind of slot into whatever place we see ourselves in this machine and let the machine operate. But sometimes you want to say, you know, we need some new machines here. Yeah.
1: I, I do think that this is... Another very clear instance of the status quo bias that we've talked about in the past as as one of the big obstacles to UBI. Just this idea that, whoa, like we don't want to mix things up too much. Like, sure, things aren't the best, but like we understand how they work now and and we kind of want to stick with that. And that just being uh, such a common mentality amongst people who have been working for years or decades doing doing this sort of work in, in Washington, D.C.
0: Yeah, and if you compare the attitudes around basic income, where it's this new weird thing that seems to cut against these status quo values, and it, it just immediately sets off a lot of alarm bells for people, compare that to Social Security, which is very similar in a lot of ways, and had a lot of the same arguments against it when it was first being introduced and was not piloted, Um yeah but Social security is like the most American thing we have right now. It's like no politician will touch it. and partly because it directly benefits the most reliably the most reliable voting demographic as and older people turn out more than anyone else. So you really don't want to want to mess with them. But also, it's just been around for so long that, The most you can ever get away with talking about is maybe streamlining some services, maybe making slight cuts to make it more solvent, but not getting rid of it. I think that's such an important point that if you look at all the
1: major reform we've passed in American history, in basically every single case, you had the exact same arguments that are being made against basic income, but also Medicare for all, Green New Deal, that no, this is too big, no, this is going to disrupt things too much, no, we can't afford it. That's all been said every single time. And it's just a few years after the fact, people seem to have this collective amnesia. And, and the people who who tend not to be comfortable with new ideas are like, yeah, of course that was great. We love that. But this is this is what always happens. And so th- this is nothing new. Something else that stood out for me from the interview was how Morgan talked about the connection between her previous work and and what she supports today. And the fact that she had been working on things in such an incremental way, and that is really what has driven her to pursue much bolder actions because she got a chance to see the ways, the ways that did work, but also the ways that that was not being sufficient. And I think that's... I honestly think having both those perspectives can be really, really valuable because it is true, depending on what you're trying to do, there's not always the same right solution. Sometimes you can do something that is adjusting what we have. And sometimes you do need something that looks a lot different. And if you can have both of those approaches as tools in your toolbox, I think that it can allow you to much more effectively over the long term be able to achieve big goals because you're not just limited to to having a single hammer and seeing everything
0: as a certain type of nail. Yeah, and especially if you're coming in proposing big new ideas, you know, you're going to get a lot of responses of like you don't get how this works or you you can't do that or we already have systems to to take care of that kind of thing. So I think her experience in, in the in the CFPB just gives her a sense of the internal workings of of the government and that she understands what it means to be a cog in that machine and I don't mean that derisively it's, it, it's um sorry um so she understands what it means to be a cog in that machine and what the machine is good for um and i don't mean i don't by calling it a machine i don't mean that it's a bad thing it's i mean it, it does certain things well in some certain ugh, i'm sorry um um So yeah, I think her experience in in government and in trying to make government work as well as it can is is both very instructive for her in designing policy, but also maybe a signal to her voters that she isn't just coming at at this saying like, the current government sucks, I've got great ideas, let's get rid of what we've got and and do what I want to do. Because there are people who do kind of come at it with that approach and to to understand what you're trying to fix and to have worked in the system that you're trying to fix, I I think is very important experience.
1: All right, that'll do it for this episode. And as a reminder, if you do like the basic income podcast, please do go to glow.fm slash basic income and support our work from there.
0: Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please rate us and review us on the podcast service of your choice. And tell your friends we're always looking to broaden this conversation. We'll see you next week.